Welcome to the DFD podcast where we discuss all things dairy farming. This week's episode is brought to you by Suregain and Trout Nutrition and their dealer partners. I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to the DFD podcast. It's your host Keith Schweitzer here again this week. Kind of a gloomy December day and uh, I've been starting to field some calls about uh, some feed bills going up with the protein markets in the last little week. So I thought it'd be very timely to have Dustin Gamble, uh, the commodity purchasing manager with a Trow Nutrition in Ontario to come on and kind of explain a little bit what's going on with the protein markets and and some of the other influences on the feed bill. So anyways, Dustin, want you to say hi to the to the audience. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Keith. And uh, um, totally understandable that a lot of guys might have questions as to uh, why am I seeing feed prices increase? Is it COVID related? Is it market related? And and you know what should we see going forward? Yeah. So why have the the proteins kind of gone up this fall? I know we were talking a little bit before we got started, but maybe if you can explain the difference between you know what we're seeing in the market versus what the COVID influences are. Yeah, and, and so a lot of guys are asking questions and, and thinking it was very related to COVID because it was such a severe um, bullish market in the summer where every day, every week, prices were driving up, right? Um, but it, it was it was quite a different phenomenon. COVID has influenced things, and we can get into a little more of those dynamics later. Um, but really, protein prices were just quite affordable when you looked at it. When uh, In the summer, we had you know Chicago futures under 300 bucks, uh, U.S. a short ton. Uh, and that is quite affordable when you look at it over the last, you know, five, eight years, whatever kind of timeline. And uh, that $300 mark is is quite cheap. And we got well under there. We were in the 280s for a while. And so it kind of set up for a huge rally because we were coming from a very affordable price and soybean meal was probably undervalued. And throughout the last few years, you know, we've had really good carryout on, say, oil seeds, um, specifically, you know, soybean meal around or soybeans around the world. And uh, so if you look at it, um, you know, we were going from over 20% carryout around the world on, say, the oil seed complex overall a few years ago. And we've kind of been windling down our, our carryout to use kind of stocks, right? Um, so an easy way to kind of just uh, quick and easy math to look at whether things you think are overvalued or undervalued is, you, you know, you look at what's the stocks to use carryout ratio and what's the price. So if you look at corn or soybeans, and you know you have uh, 20, 25 percent carryout at the end of a year. That is a lot of carryout. Um, that commodity has a you know a fifth to a quarter of its crop left at the end of the year. It's trying to signal to the market, hey Keith, don't grow as many beans or as much corn. There's a pile around. Or hey Keith, um, you're formulating for livestock. Can you use more of this in livestock? I'm going to make my price more competitive. So when you have a huge carryout, you know you have a low price. So when you're looking at a, a huge carryout like I don't know, at one point we were looking 23, 24% carryout on corn. That's why we started seeing corn go down to the, you know, $3 corn and people thought maybe it could go lower. Uh, we had so much corn around and we predicted we'd have so much corn around this crop year that it wouldn't be funny, right? We wouldn't know what to do with it all. Um, and then in other years when you have, you know, two or three droughts in a row, uh, like, you know, a decade ago, uh, your stocks to carry out use ratio, you're not carrying out that much. You're carrying out six or seven or 8% of a crop year. I mean, you're carrying out a couple of weeks and you can hardly survive in those couple of weeks because you have to have it evenly distributed, you know, around the world or around North America or, or, you know, around Southwestern Ontario. So it's really tough to manage that. And what you're trying to say is, uh, Hey Keith, um, please grow more corn or Hey Keith, please use less corn in your ration or, or, you know, soybean meal. 
Um, so that's kind of the dynamics that go around. So, so we just saw oil seeds around the world. Um, it's, it's record production this year, still on the oil seed side, uh, but it's also record consumption. And when we had, you know, the derecho storm in the U.S. is kind of one factor. You lose a bunch of acres, but really you get some dry weather in the main producing areas of the U.S. and you lose a lot of production and the yields come back and the production comes back. And next thing you know, um, you know, our, our carryouts are significantly reduced um, for soybeans and, and for corn. And so the prices have to react accordingly. And then also we had a lot of macro factors like the funds. There's a lot more money kind of in the, you know, in the economy with everybody kind of printing money. There's a lot more uh, money out there to, to be invested. And from the fund standpoint, um, you're looking at inflation or people were talking about it and you say, well, if you're going to worry about inflation, you need to invest in commodities, whether it's, you know, gold, soybeans, soybean meal, you know, hog futures, whatever. So guys come back into commodities. So we saw the funds go from, you know, not record, you know, pretty heavy short positions to pretty heavy long positions and they're driving things up. And then that locally ended up with some pretty interesting dynamics for us where we're going through harvest, which is normally when corn in theory, you know, it's, it's usually, and we expect it to be cheapest at harvest. We've got the farmer taking corn off the field and selling to the elevator. And then the elevator is going to store it for the year. So they turn around to Chicago and they sell futures on the Chicago, uh, you know, board. Uh, so they can kind of reduce the risk and keep everything on basis. And you have a lot of hedging pressure with farmer selling and people selling uh, futures to, to reduce that Chicago price versus this year, we didn't have a lot of farmers selling. They were well sold. Yields were lower than we expected and they had sold wheat and they had sold beans. And so they're holding back uh, on say the corn side. And we see funds come into the, you know, uh, soybean and, and, and soy oil complex and also corn and drive things up dramatically. Um, so, so we saw a lot of different things kind of around the world, um, but, but then locally, that was the unique factor within North America that really drove up Chicago values. So are the funds just looking for like tangible things? Like they want to have something they can actually put their hands on and buy and sell with kind of the downturn, I guess, in the stock market or the economy? Uh, no, it would be mostly paper. Like they're not going to take delivery. Um, so my brother's a, a fund manager in Toronto and, and so they won't come into commodities, but, uh, they have uh, their own their own portfolio. So he's a portfolio manager, and they look at things very objectively, right? And so some of the funds that will jump around between different things and correct markets, they're saying stocks are all time highs, and at the same time, stocks are all time highs. Commodities in general are relatively extremely low, and if you do a ratio of the value of stocks, or you know the total equity in stocks, and, and where commodities are, kind of as an index. Um, you'll see a ratio kind of come back and forth. And right now we are at one extreme where, you know, oil was cheap and livestock and grains and oil seeds were cheap and commodities in general were quite affordable. And the stock market was just off the charts, incredibly highly valued. So you might have a lot of guys saying, well, if I'm putting my money in the stock market, there could be a reset. And really the market's telling you, you've almost never had a spread between where stocks are and, you know, uh, valuating businesses and where you have the commodities or the raw materials used in these businesses. So a lot of money started coming on the sidelines with elections and everything else and all the uncertainty out there. And, and commodities is a nice place to bury money when you're looking at a chart and things were really affordable and, and really they're trading that spread in between things. So um, it was kind of a perfect storm to the derecho storm was a good news thing to raise awareness. Uh, a lot of other things were going on, but I guess the big thing that, that we saw coming, which was nice to be, one of the bigger feed companies around the world and to have friends, you know, in South America and Europe and some of the other markets was 
Um, Brazil was really well sold on, on say beans. They don't crush as much meal and oil as say Argentina. Argentina is much more, you know, a finished product or a value added product. And so these guys are all starting to be really well sold and the world is hungry and China's coming in and buying. And uh, the U S started to be the cheapest source out there for say soybeans, soybean meal or corn. And so the problem on the protein side was you, this started happening in the middle of August and a lot of the crush plants are going to take their downtime in September and October. So you're actually going to have slightly reduced supply uh, of soybean meal or, or say proteins for livestock and everything. And you're going into a period where the exports are going to get hit really, really hard. And it was going to be a hard hit because it was going to be a sustained hit all the way through to, you know, South American harvest. So, you know, that's why meal got incredibly, incredibly tight for September, October, and, and maybe everybody thought it would loosen up at some point. Um, and then a lot of people, you could look at the futures and you'd see an inverse in the market, which, which is kind of complex to explain or walk through, but essentially it's the market's way of telling, you know, buyers like ourselves to be really patient and, and wait for things to calm down. And maybe it has now a little bit, but uh, we, we started seeing these signals that Europe wasn't able to go to South America and on the oilseed side, you really only have, you know, U.S. And, and Brazil and Argentina on the oilseed side for a large part, right, going to, going to Asia and Europe. And when Europe comes into the U.S. in a big way and we start reducing all that production, then we're saying there's a lot less being produced in the U.S., yields are lower, and now we have huge exports. So our stocks at the end of the year are going to be minimal. So I think when you go through and, and you look up like a soybean uh, S&D based on USDA WASDE reports, you know, 1819, you had almost, uh, you know, a, a billion bushels of carryout on beans. And then 1920 crop year, you're at half of that. Uh, this year, we've walked our way down to 190, um, 190 million bushels of soybeans left in the U.S. at the end of this crop year. Did you say and, million or billion? I, I'm saying million bushels. So like, like, like that's next to nothing, isn't it? Like if you look at yeah. the grand scheme of things? Yeah, so you're going from a billion, which is pretty high. And then you're going to half a billion and now you're going to less than 0.2. How do you keep crush plants all going? Uh, how do you keep exports going? How do you keep the pipeline? And, and how do you pry every single bushel from, from a bin or from an elevator and make it available to the market? So a lot, of that, a lot of those bushels that are left at the end of the year, let's just round numbers and say, you know, 200 million bushels. Not all of those are available to trade. And if they are available, they need to be stocking pipelines. And if a crop is delayed by a few weeks, you know, now, now you've essentially run out. So when you look at some of these things, you expect the U.S. will run out. You know, there is a lot of panic. Um, but really, there are sales to China or there's sales to other places that when South America comes on, sales out of the U.S. Gulf will be canceled. And, and you know, they'll arbitrage it to Brazil or Argentina or other regions. And they'll juggle stuff around. And we've seen it before where it gets incredibly tight. And it's a really big news release that, you know, gets the funds or other people fired up when you see South American beans might come into the U.S. East Coast where Purdue has a few crush plants and they have a terminal and they can bring them in real efficiently. And they, you know, if you're struggling to get beans, it's probably most efficient to leave U.S. beans in the interior and ship out to markets like ourselves in Western Canada and California and that and, and bring South American beans in to the you know, East Coast to support some of those big poultry integrators and, and those types of markets. So, you know yeah, it's kind of funny you say that. So I, I'm, I'm just going to try and relate this back to something locally. Like I know a lot of producers were, you know, talking about 14, $15 beans this fall, but it sounds like all those beans were sold and in the pipeline already. Like it sounded like a lot of producers had already contracted at 1250. So the, it seemed like the price was arbitrarily 
inflated a bit. That's maybe just what I'm going on or thinking about right now. But And it was tough for some guys to pull the trigger even more because they were well sold, right? They're, uh, um, maybe guy was, maybe we could just use round numbers, you know, 60 bushels an acre. Maybe guys were 30 or 40 bushels an acre sold. Values start to rise. They hit some 13, 1350 beans. Maybe they're lucky enough to get 14. And then they miss out on the whole top range. And it's a really emotional process, right? It'd be like watching your retirement fund just take a beating, right? But, yeah. but really, they're making good money at those numbers. And the yields are good. And the revenue per acre is, is quite solid. And so there was a lot of emotions going on. And they're well sold on, on beans. And the whole oil fee complex, the market is signaling to you. Uh, you don't hold on to beans normally as much as you hold on to other products, right? Because you really get a South American harvest that brings it on. Versus you look at corn or wheat, um, those are much more a North American, or sorry, Northern Hemisphere uh, commodity, right? With uh, uh, Asia and Indonesia, like, you know, China, Indonesia, all the European countries, uh, North America. North America is the largest producer on, on say, the green grains, not really coarse grains, but, you know, wheat, corn, uh, and everything else. Yep. So at least it's a little more balanced on the oil seed side. So you really only have to last throughout the world six months before you get a little more canola out of Australia, but again, more of a Northern hemisphere thing, but South America comes online and you get a huge surge of soybeans back into the market. Right. So, um, you know, you kind of have the different dynamics at play and uh, um, really everything kind of was the perfect storm to really drive protein prices up locally. And we went from one extreme where we were extremely low. So say soybean meal, I don't know round numbers again, say you went from, you know, sub 450 to, you know, over 600 bucks in a period of a few months. I mean, that is a dramatic move, right? So, well, yeah, like I know on the soy meal side, I think producers back probably the end of July, early August, we're looking at, you know, that 450, 460 on farm. And I forget what it was last week, but I've, I've heard highs of like 650, 635, 650. So, I mean, that's a big change in a very, very short period of time. And same thing with canola. Like I had producers who luckily enough had booked some canola in and, you know, they're booking in at 340, 350 and last cash prices, they backed off a little bit, but last cash prices I heard were in that 460, 480, $500 range. So. Yeah. And, and it is a dramatic. And if you, I guess if you zoom out of some of the global side and you look at our market. Um, so if you're talking about soybean meal or canola, um, there's a couple crushers locally and and I guess we're lucky to have crushers locally because it makes us more in an origin market where we can just truck stuff in from the local guy. You know, you can send them your beans, you can bring meal back out, uh, makes logistics a lot easier. But it also puts us in that mindset where a lot of people are just buying a month or two at a time and, and you know, not really getting their neck out on the line for like this summer, where will our local crushers get their beans from? When will they get ownership? You know, like it'll be very back to back and very choppy in terms of when you can get your meal on at different points in time. Right. So um, our market has kind of a neat dynamic and one of the crushers, well, both of them are on the water, but one of them can load vessels back out. Right. So technically we're competing with some European demand here locally. That's really tightening our market up. Uh, so normally we see a lot of rail come into our market out of the U S uh, Midwest, right? Like, like those Iowa types of plants um, direct mm-hmm. on CP or, or CN rail lines. And those, that usually helps our market. And you have a few transloaders around Southwestern Ontario where, where one was a big facility and they get a lot of rail in it would really help our market have a bit of a buffer. And we've seen that change a little bit with a huge crush plant over in Michigan that's within trucking distance. Um, and so that's like, a, you know, um, a, a million and a half, uh, a million and a half ton a year crush plant in the middle of Michigan. And it reaches our market pretty well. 
And so that has kind of pushed our local basis values down or a local price to keep rail out. So now we're very much serviced by trucks more than rail. At least when you're serviced by rail, you have more product on the ground and, and some of the supply and demand shifts don't kind of hurt you as much, but things have been really tight for some people just in terms of poking around at different times, trying to even get loads. It just kind of boggles my mind. Like, you know, locally we're looking at going to the feed mill or going to your commodity purchaser and trying to buy and to buy soy or canola or distillers or gluten feed or all those other things. But there's a whole lot of things going on in the background that are influencing a lot of those prices. So like if you had to say what are maybe the top three things that are the uh, influences on our current like protein market, like what would they be, do you think? I would say it's just general tightness. There's huge consumption all around the world. So even if you have a record crop for you know, oil seeds around the world. I mean, that's grouping a lot of oil seeds together um, and that's grouping a lot of regions. But even if you have a record crop, you're, you're still using quite a lot and you're left with very little at the end of the year. And price is trying to either encourage further production or encourage uh, demand rationing. So that's a major trend that has pushed things up. And at first, a lot of people thought, well, hey, we'll wait for South American harvest. We'll get some corn off. We'll get some beans off. It'll really calm markets down. And the, the futures markets were showing you, you know, hey, you're $400 futures now. But uh, in the deferred periods, you know, maybe you're $20 or $30 cheaper. You couldn't actually go buy that from our local crushers because, you know, farmers not going to sell soybeans at a discount and forward. So they'd, they'd have to buy now and store. So you couldn't get that inverse. But uh, you kind of had to wait for the market to correct itself. And now we've seen the market come down to more reasonable prices and maybe the inverses have kind of settled out that instead of soybean meal futures being cheaper months down the road, now it's flattening out and it's a little more even. Um, but the main message is we really need to wait until we get a Northern hemisphere crop. That's a really good crop to go down to some of the prices we were at before. So South America, we don't think is going to be a fantastic crop you know, we'll be happy if it's an average crop just to get us through. And you're, you know, as a livestock producer, maybe not a cash cropper, you're crossing your fingers that we have a great Northern uh, hemisphere production this year to bring prices back down to a more reasonable level. Uh, so that's one main factor kind of going on throughout the world. And then another one that I always try to impress upon dairy producers is that, you know, canola really is a, a major ingredient uh, for dairy farmers in Canada, right? Uh, we only consume maybe half a million tons of canola meal um, throughout Canada uh, as a whole. And so when you start digging into kind of the supply and demand of it all, um, if, we're, if we're only producing, or we're only consuming a half a million tons of the canola meal and we're crushing eight to nine million tons, uh, you know, we're, we're crushing uh, eight to nine million tons of seed and we can produce, you know, almost six million tons, five and a half, six million tons of meal. Um, really it's all being exported. So on the canola meal side, these crushers are growing, you know, guys are growing canola and they're contracting that canola. They're selling the oil to a lot of the big uh, restaurants and, and retailers and packagers and everything else. And those price lists and those timelines, like you don't usually see vegetable oil or canola oil change in the grocery store. And you don't see the burger price or the fry price change at, at your uh, you know, local burger joint. So they're very static prices and they have to manage their margins accordingly. But you can, you know, you can see the meal prices um, change quite often. And so you're, you're competing on a global market on that side. You see the exports go crazy. Um, you know, the Asian markets are really trying to diversify and get away from, you know, I guess, you know, Trump's not in anymore, but they were really trying to get away from the U.S. where there were some trade disputes. 
and I mean, they still have trade disputes with Canada, but they were diversifying to get Canadian canola meal. And uh, so when you're looking at it, you're competing, uh, you know, 20 million acres out West and there's what, you know, 40 to 50,000 in Ontario and, and maybe similar more or less in Quebec. And you have crushers in Quebec and Ontario really are seeds coming from out West. So again, you're, you're fighting on a global marketplace for the seed, you're fighting for the meal. So when our crushers bring stuff in, they're, you know, they're running on a bit of a different dynamic than what we're used to thinking of in Ontario, um, you know, based on such a strong supply managed market. So they'll have to take, they'll have to get seed bought in Western Canada, bring it into an elevator, um, you know, store it until the rail services them, load it on rail, you know, ship it for a week to Thunder Bay, sit on it in Thunder Bay as stocks, the vessel shows up, you load the vessel for a few days, you know, it floats down to, uh, our local crushers here, they unload it, it sits in storage as, as seed, right? Raw seed, it gets crushed, they have minimal storage on, on the finished meal side and then it comes out to your farm. Well, really you're thinking three or four month pipeline, um, but it's a lot more complex than, than even that really, right? Because they have to make sure they have the oil gone to their consumers and they've got to line everything up on, on the seed side. And when you go into the winter, the lakes will close, they will not be bringing in vessels, uh, you know, January, February, March from Thunder Bay. So it's a much longer timeline than, than what I think we're used to thinking of in Ontario. So you really, if you wanted to just, you know, be four to six months forward on canola and you were to track that, you, you'd probably almost be right. I mean, it's dangerous to do that without thinking, but in, but in general, the crusher wants you to be thinking in a forward time period. They want to have their oil sold. They want to have their seed bought. They want to manage their margins accordingly. And so if you're looking at, Soybean meal where, you know, our local crusher can just buy soybeans from Keith and turn around and sell meal to Dustin for this week or next month or whatever the timeline is. It's not the same on the canola side. It's not the same on the palm fat side. A lot of these ingredients are coming from other regions and, and you're competing globally for them. Um, and so, like, if you just go back to it, you're, you're feeding half a million tons of canola meal in Canada and you're, you're crushing it. It's dirt cheap here but it's really going to shift to those other markets who will pay a premium for it. And so the hog and poultry guys are not going to be the ones to pay for it within Canada. It's, it's usually going to be the dairy producer, um, you know, looking at it for a unit of bypass protein or some of the other nutritional uh, values that it, that it brings to the ration and the performance. Right. Um, so you, you kind of have to think of the pipeline and you kind of have to think of your suppliers. So uh, a local crusher might just buy soybeans off Keith and turn around and sell meal to Dustin and, and kind of back to back it and life's good, but they can't do that on canola. Um, and, and so I guess the second main message I would want guys to consider is, where's your product coming from? How does that company interact? How do they interact with their vendors, You know, their customers on the oil side, all the other different things? Um, if you think a little more big picture and COVID has really helped us all do that through these challenging times, you can see how the supply and demand dynamics uh, change and why some ingredients are really cheap and at one point, you know, canola really wants to work into every dairy farmer's ration and canola even wants to work into hog and poultry rations. And then three months later, you can hardly get the stuff to come this way and the lakes are closed and the price is a little, you know, it's a little bit different. So if it works in your ration and you see a performance benefit and everything's going well, canola is kind of one of those ingredients where it usually doesn't hurt to be a little more uh, forward thinking and get booked and locked in and, and that type of thing. Well, I've been burnt on that numerous times and it's one of the things i know last year it was probably 
I'm thinking it was like January, February, and the canola was like forty to fifty dollars. Like the futures were forty to fifty dollars under what cash price was, and I had a bunch of producers go out and lock it in. Turns out I, it was a good idea because you know not necessarily the price didn't necessarily go up, but the availability wasn't there. So that's one thing that I always talk to producers: if you're going to use canola, we got to do a little bit more thinking about you know contracting it and having loads booked ahead and things like that so that we can kind of kind of cover yourself and if you look at those markets that we even compete with locally is uh, michigan so one of the crushers is right on the border with michigan and uh, it's much easier for them to get trucks out of our local crusher than it is for them to try to get rail cars from the west and so a lot of those dairy producers know some of their volumes and they know their rations and they'll come in and they'll they'll book, uh, you know, what we call clock or, you know, 12 months of the year on, on maybe basis or flat price and they'll get everything locked down. And that really helps the local crusher line up their logistics and figure everything out because to say, you know, buy it from say the Southeast corner of Saskatchewan or, you know, Western Manitoba and rail it for 20, 25 bucks to Thunder Bay and then transload it and put it on a vessel and bring it down for $20 and bring it right into your, your crusher and just unload it and it's available to them. I mean, that's a pretty efficient mechanism to get it to guys and then crush it and truck it out to, you know, either Michigan or ourselves or the other crusher can, can crush and send to New York rather easily. Um, the same dynamic up in Quebec, they can support some of the U S states that are nearby up there, right. With some of their exports. But if you want to try to bring rail cars in from Western Canada, I mean, when things are busy, how do you even get rail cars? Who wants to send one, two, three, five, ten rail cars to, to Eastern Canada when you can just move, you know, 100 car units to Vancouver and back? So it's hard to even execute on, but also your cost structure. I mean, if you look at, at rail rates, um, you can be looking, you know, 90 or 100 bucks a ton or more very easily just to try to get canola to our marketplace. And then, you know, dairy farms are not sitting directly on rail. You still have to translate it and truck it. Um, a really efficient way is to just bring it down to the crusher, crusher, get it to farm and, you know, bring it in the efficient vessel uh, method versus trying to rail stuff in. So um, over the course of the year, you might be a little wrong or you might be offside, but at some point you have an issue with one of your local crushers or Western Canada or whatever it is, or, or, you know, we've had issues with rail strikes, you know, CN had a rail strike. There were the protests on the rail. We are having a heck of a time getting stuff up to uh, Quebec and Atlantic Canada. Sometimes it's nice just to have things on the books and, and roll on and execute on it. Right. Um, and so that's why a lot of those markets, they might be offside or they might be wrong for five or 10 bucks. I guess if it's on a basis, I mean, it's flat price. There's obviously a lot more price risk, right, Keith? But uh, yep. they might be offside for a month or two, but there's probably a month where they're onside by 50, 60 bucks a ton. And there's also that, um, I guess you just call it headache factor or logistic premium where, hey, I got it locked down. It's coming in. I've got it bought. Someone's got it delivered to me. Like life's good. It's not my problem. Versus if you don't have it bought, you got to call up Keith and you got to say, Hey Keith, I have to reformulate my ration. What can we use? What can we do? The next thing you know, your, you know, your costs are, are increasing uh, significantly. Right. Well, and that's one of the things if you do have a book, do you know what your cost is? Right. So, you know, last year, I think a lot of producers did well booking canola. Um, like, I don't think it would be something that maybe we look at right now. Maybe the market's a little too expensive. I don't know. What do you think about like at least hedging a little bit on canola right now? Yeah, I don't know. I think on that side, uh, I have a tough time. Like my background's not really on, on the dairy side. And, and uh, I have a tough time 
understanding what a good risk management policy is, right, for for a dairy farm and and how it all works, right, Keith, and the nutrition. Uh, yep. it, it's a little it's a little more abstract, not 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 to be offensive to anybody, but the monogastric side is really straightforward and and we're really streamlined. And uh, you know, our head nutritionist right across the hallway from me, we have the formulas. We can kind of see everything coming at us, and we can adapt really quickly. And I feel like the dairy side's a, a little trickier, right? Um, you're really only providing a smaller piece of the ration and you're, you're balancing a lot of other different factors. And so you probably don't want to be changing rations. And if you got canola in and guys really like canola and the benefits going well, you probably don't want to take it out and put it back in. Not, not that the other species do too. Right. But uh, it, it, it makes it really difficult um, when you're just a small uh, piece of the puzzle to understand, you know, how can a dairy guy protect their margin? Um, you know, how can some of these other things work? So in general, I would say if, if prices weren't low enough in the summer that we were booking things or pricing things out for three or six months when they were, you know, relative lows over a pretty medium term time frame, you know, like four or five, six years, mm -hmm. if it wasn't low enough to be booking things out there, I, I for, for sure wouldn't want to be stepping in the market and booking it now. Um, because, you know, uh, again, unless you're specifically protecting a margin, right? If you're, if you're a hog producer and something's gone on with African swine fever and, before you were losing money and now you're making a hundred bucks a hog for sure. I think it makes sense. Uh, who cares what the price of soybean and corn is you're making a hundred bucks a hog or something. Let's, let's look at making sure that you're protecting yourself and capitalizing on this opportunity and not just capitalizing now, but over, you know, three to six months or something like that. Um, but so I would say to, to just go out and take a flat price position on canola. Um, I don't know. They, they give me a lot of rope here sometimes too at work, right, Keith? And I can, yeah. I can hear myself at different times, but uh, I don't think I would be taking that position personally. So, and basis really is a nice way to go, but I think a lot of guys on farm are getting canola flat price or through a roper or whatever else. So it's, it's yeah. a little easy as a feed company to say, well, I need to secure supply. Basis numbers look good. I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to work with people and get this locked down and, and, uh, you know, things should go well. Right. So, um, it, it's a little easier from my standpoint, cause I, I know our business, I know what we're looking at. So I'd have a hard time maybe advising on the dairy side. So, well, yeah. And I, I mean, a lot of the, like not every dairy producer is going to take, you know, truckloads of stuff either. Right. So that really throws a wrench into it because it's a lot more difficult to book a formula, like your formula coming out of the feed mill is probably not going to be like a canola plus mineral or something like that. Like there's going to be a lot of other factors to it. So, um, it's, it's a really, really tough decision. I think on the dairy, much more than with the monogastric, uh, to book something, you know, when you're looking at a five ingredient feed versus a 20 ingredient feed, you know, there's a lot of different, uh, there's just a lot of different risk factors involved with that one. So. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a little weaker on the dairy side, uh, not having the nutrition background in that. So what I rely on is I reply, rely on your uh, nutrition formulation team where they have that commodity newsletter. So that's kind of where we try to marry the nutrient levels of ingredients um, with say the current prices. So we go in there and, and, you know, uh, just in general, we always use corn as the benchmark for energy, which, which would be similar for dairy or swine or, or poultry. Yeah. Right. And then we use soybean meal as the benchmark for soy or for protein. And the reason we do that is because those are very transparent commodities. The prices are easy to find. The availability is abundant. And then we say, Hey, you know, if we're looking on the dairy side, here's the bypass, uh, you know, the cost per unit of bypass protein on soybean meal. And Hey, let's compare that to distillers. Let's compare that to canola. Let's compare that to, you know, gluten feed and pork meal and some of the other ingredients out there. 
and normally there's at least a few ingredients beating soybean meal and you know that's why you're feeding gluten feed on farm or distillers or whatever else right yep and so that kind of helps me know what what's maybe being fed on farm or what are guys looking for or what's going to come into some of the dairy feeds um, that we make you know maybe not so much premixes and stuff but but some of the other rations or supplements uh, depending on the inclusion level you you get an idea of hey if canola is a premium uh, to soy you know you're you're probably not going to be using a whole heck of a lot but when canola comes down as a significant discount you know, you're going to, you're going to see that usage ramp right up and, and, you know, you better have a bot. And like we talked about, there's a bit of a pipeline on it, right? So you better get started and you better get things under control. Um, or you better, you know, you better be working with your nutritionists um, so that when you see this, you can call up your local crusher. And if they do have some canola to sell, you know, you're one of the first guys in line to make sure you get it. Um, Cause once everybody catches on to it, there's always, you know, there's always somebody left standing in that game of musical chairs. Right. So yeah. And I, and I know like I have some specific rules that I use, like one for instance is like soy and canola. Like if there's an $80 spread on soy and canola, I'd probably, you know, it's at the lower end, but I'd probably pick canola. And once you get above that $80 spread, like that's, you know, it's just money in the bank to me. And I mean, that's my own, my own bias with ingredients, but uh, yeah, these commodity markets are, it's crazy. Like it's, it takes people like you who are doing it full time. And I, I mean, your head's probably still spins on a regular basis on kind of what's going on locally and what's going on globally and all the different factors that influences it. So. Yeah. I don't know. I, so, some days uh, you, you have absolutely the best job in the world, right? Um, uh, Trow or, or Nutreco is one of the biggest feed companies in the world. You have a lot of friends in uh, like, like we'll talk to our buddy Fernando in South America, or we have a, a bunch of guys in Europe. Um, like our guys in Spain make, well over 3 million tons of feed and they're big consumers over there, right? You've got uh, friends in Western Canada, you got friends in the U.S. You get to see a lot of different things and uh, it's really good to get information uh, to know what's going on. But at the same time, uh, sometimes, you know, it's obviously got to be well coordinated or it's a bit overwhelming at times too, right? Uh, you got to do something with that information or make sure that you're, you're using it, protecting your business and securing your supply chain and everything else. Um, but we have, you know, and when you're, uh, when everything's going well and, and you know, pre COVID Keith, um, you got a lot of, fr- you got a lot of friends around, right? You got yep. uh, good sales reps, good customers, supply management's great for our industry on, on that end. Right. Uh, it's fantastic. And you drive around the countryside and it's beautiful and uh, we've got good nutritionists to work with and we've got good vendors that we work with and, and, you know, when everything's going well, it's, uh, it's beautiful, but COVID has certainly impacted something. So, um, you know, like corn distillers would certainly be one of those items where if we hadn't have had COVID this year, um, how much more fuel would have been used within North America, right? How many more ethanol plants wouldn't have closed down or wouldn't have idled? How much more production would there have been? You know, how many millions of tons of distillers uh, would have been out there available uh, for the ruminants to feed, right? Uh, If you look at the supply and demand on the U.S. side, maybe they make 40 million tons of, of distillers a year, uh, you know, poultry and hogs are using a couple million tons and, you know, the rest is all uh, dairy and beef, right? It's the mm-hmm. ruminant guys just hammering through the, the corn distillers. And so when we have something so disruptive to one of the aspects of our business, such as, you know, the fuel demand and, and the ethanol plants, I really had a tough, tough time this year or, or certain ones did, right? Um, then it, then it really pushes them around. So when the availability of distillers snugs up by, you know, 10, 15, 20% or more, um, that really influences price. And then, uh, well, it probably creates a lot of work for guys like yourselves, right? Like uh, someone's feeding distillers and you can't get it or it's tighter and you got yeah. to ratchet it back and you got to look for all your other ingredients. And, and so we're starting to see that again here where 
um, you know, one of our local ethanol plants is, is having a heck of a time. And so things are starting to slow down and they're having less availability. Um, and so that's why you're seeing, you know, over $300 distillers, uh, you know, someone had told you distillers were going to be over $300 in the summer. Um, you know, you would have thought they were crazy, but, but now it, you know, $300 on the dot would be a fantastic price, right? Well, I mean, like it's been over $300 since probably, well, it's had some time where it dipped below that number, but like, I've never seen distillers so high and it started even before, I guess, COVID. Like it, it was like, I think even in March, it was over $300 or pushing there. Um, just with different plant shutdowns and some different things going on on the ethanol side of things. And, and I guess there's new things that we see every year and we have to adapt to and learn. So that's just uh, that's just one of them that keeps us on our toes. Right. But like back to the markets, like, so when you, when we start to see things like distillers and things like creep up, like, is there any formula to say that, you know what, they're going to follow soy or is something like distillers all supply and demand? Uh, I'd say I'm a very fundamental guy. I like to go back to the supply and demand. Um, I like to say, you know, let's look locally for distillers. How expensive can distillers get locally? Well, they can get as expensive until you can bring in a whole pile of trucks from Michigan, right? Like we're not going to bring mm -hmm. in rail like Quebec or some other markets would. Um, so, so we're just going to bring in trucks from Michigan and really our price should only get so high um, before you can bring in trucks from Michigan. Now, I mean, trucks from Michigan have become tight with all the soybean meal and all the corn coming back too now, right? But uh, in theory, that's kind of your ceiling. That's your resistance point. How expensive are distillers gonna get? Well, they shouldn't go too much above that number or everyone and their brother should start bringing that stuff in and, and create some savings for themselves, right? And then how cheap can distillers get? Well, you know, you get too cheap, you'll start sending stuff up to Quebec to push rail kind of going into that market or you'll push stuff into New York or in, in theory, you can have, you know, some limited exports. Uh, I'm going out the Great Lakes, St. Lawrence Seaway uh, or containering, right? Like our market, yeah. uh, um, like the biggest ethanol plant we have in Southwestern Ontario, they probably send half of their product by container uh, over to Asia. And then some of the other guys, um, I mean, they're, they have to participate in the export market because we have, um, that's just the dynamics, right? So how, how crazy priced are distillers? Well, you say it can go as high until I can bring something else in and, and tell Keith, Hey, you know, thanks for supporting me, but your price is too high. I got to switch to Dustin or, or, you know, uh, it can go the other way too. So you have your floor and your ceiling and that kind of gives you an idea of where the range is. But when, when supply and demand does tighten up, um, that's why I like to have supply and demands. And I like to work for a group like ours where we have some pretty reasonable market shares in the different species. So you can talk to your nutritionists and your sales guys to get a good idea of where it'll go. Um, then, then really the feed guys have a really interesting job in the industry because you have to balance the supply and demand of everything, right? Um, like when it comes to the flour mills, every, all the byproducts, all the mill feeds or, or the shorts that come out of the flour mills, they go to feed. You're not competing with any other industry. If they have a lot, feed has to use it. If they have very little, feed has to use it and the price has to change. Uh, it's the same thing with distillers. If all the ethanol plants shut down, you know, some crazy government thing happens or, or they all double in size, the feed guys have to figure out how to use it. And so it's, uh, you know, sales guys and, and nutritionists and formulators have to kind of get together and solve that problem as, you know, a company or an industry or however it works. And so that's why I think it's so, it's so interesting to be in this industry because there just is no answer of, Hey Keith, we're going to, one of our plants locally is tired and it's depreciated and it's going to shut down. I know exactly where the price is going to go. Right. Um, you got to yeah. pay attention to a pile of factors. You got to talk to, we got to talk to our coworkers up in Quebec who have a good pulse on things. We got to talk to our, our friends in the U S 
and we got to uh, talk to our own nutritionists and, and you know sales guys locally. So uh, wow. it, it is quite expensive. I'm looking at the commodity newsletter there, Keith, and we have data back to 2016 right on that list. And you know, distillers was, um, you know, it was 200, you know, maybe 240 bucks for just years and years and years before we hit this thing, right? So. I know, Dustin, if we had uh, a crystal ball and could predict all this stuff and say, hey, it's going to be like this, I think we'd be sitting on the beach in Mexico somewhere <laughs> sipping tequila. Yeah. But, uh, um, and I just have one more question to follow off. And I know this isn't something that's maybe my strong suit, but I've been looking at it more and, and trying to get into, get my head wrapped around it. And it's uh, booking feeds. And how can a producer or how can, uh, can a rep like myself know when the right time is to pull the trigger and like what factors should we maybe be looking for? Yeah, I guess that one is a, is a great question, Keith. And it, it's a really valuable uh, question. Like it's a great tool for producer to put in their feed, you know, tool kit and we should always be thinking about it. And so in the summer, if, if we're saying things are relatively cheap, we should be locking in canola to manage risk. And that probably has, you know, if we do this 10 times over 10 years, this has dollar values for our, for our producers. It keeps the ration safe. Um, you know, it locks in the product and, you know, when we're in the low range, you probably have a lot more upside than downside. Um, I think you have to kind of consider, talk to your sales rep. How does it work in your ration? You know, look at some charts like that commodity newsletter, look, look at some charts and get an idea of where have prices been, where are the competing ingredients? Um, but, but really you have to kind of look at it as, are you managing margins? Like I'm a big fan of managing margins. Um, again, if you, you know, you go back to that hundred dollar a hog kind of number or whatever it is, if you have these really good numbers that you'd love to have for a longer period of time, uh, let's go lock those in and do the best thing you can do to manage those margins. But if, if you're looking at terrible margins or negative margins, or you're really just speculating on the price, um, you know, I kind of have to ask what, what value does it come just coming to the market and speculating on it? Um, but again, if you're, if you're a dairy producer, when it comes to canola, you probably have a little bit of an appetite to be going longer because there is value, right? Uh, you could be long and, and the value goes down $10, $20, but there is value for you to have it locked in, to have supply, to have the ration balance, to have everything else. Um, so, so really it, it's quite complicated on the dairy side and that's why it's difficult, right? Because you have, um, very many producers and, and very many sales reps out there and you kind of have to have a lot of local conversations and understand it specific to the to the customer right um so so again if you know i see a lot of value in supply management right but if supply management goes away and your prices are a lot more volatile and your margins are a lot more volatile and you go a year losing money and then you go a year making really good money uh, then feed bookings are much more important and that conversation has to happen at a at a much greater frequency right and you got to you got to really build that tool up the relationship with your feed company or, or, or you know, your rep or whoever else. Um, but I think right now we've, you know, if we were looking at numbers in the summer and we we're looking at really big carryouts on some of these commodities and we weren't booking things at that point in time, now that things are tight, you know, why are we really looking to maybe book now? Um, unless we get to next spring and everything goes in early and everything looks great and everyone tells the market, Hey, we're going to have a great Northern hemisphere crop values are going to go down. And next thing you know, futures, you know, you look at corn futures and bean futures and they're really cheap for new crop. And then meal futures are really cheap. Then you start saying, well, Hey, let's, let's maybe have that conversation. Right. But I guess uh, right now for me, I'd have a hard time putting a proposal together for why guys should step into the market now 
uh, to be managing risk when, when we kind of miss that opportunity. Yeah. And I guess maybe the two factors I would think about, and you've mentioned too, was either margin control or risk management where, you know, commodity volatile, like volatile commodities are kind of a bugger on a good day, let alone when we're on a market high, kind of like we're sitting on right now. So it's like, you know, I've talked to a couple commodity um, companies and it's like, yeah, you probably shouldn't mark that. Shouldn't, you know, be covering your risk now, maybe wait a little bit and just see kind of what the futures are doing. But like back to canola, things like that, like then you got to got to look at risk management because typically August and September, it's tough to get canola. So should we have a couple of loads booked, I guess, is the question you got to be asking. Yeah. It, and really it's my job to make sure we're putting on commodity newsletter. We're communicating to our team. Hey, Keith, you know, um, we have these third of a billion dollar crush plants out West on canola. Uh, you know, they've got $35 costs and they're trying to make 50 bucks, you know, gross profit. And that's a great return for their shareholders. And now oil demands huge and biodiesel demands huge and different things have happened in COVID and, you know, Hey, their crush margins are 80 or a hundred bucks. Um, now right now you can't really bid someone or get cheap canola because, uh, Asia will take everything and you have some and then some, but, uh, for a while there, China essentially didn't have any Canadian canola going to them because you had to get the ingredient registered and, and they were kind of, you know, jerking you around with some of the fun. So when those crushers are looking for markets and, and they have really strong margins, that's when they'd be happy to ship stuff to Eastern Canada or your local crusher would be happy to book stuff out with you. And they'll be really flexible on price because they're locking in a really strong margin for themselves. And by doing so, because all the margin, really the big contributors on the oil seed side there, so they can sell you canola at a much cheaper price to make sure they lock it in and they lock it in in forwards. And by selling you a much cheaper price that works for you, they're locking in a much higher margin than they're used to for themselves. And, you know, them and their boss and their shareholders and everyone's happy on their end and you and your producers and everyone else are happy on your end. Um, so, so those types of situations when, when it's a win-win situation for the canola grower in Western Canada, the, you know, the vegetable oil consumer, the crusher, and for us consuming canola meal, um, when, when the markets kind of align that there are opportunities, that's when I think it makes a lot of sense to be looking at booking feeds or look at booking your canola or, or do some of the other aspects. Or perhaps we get to the spring and the South America starts to look really bad. And maybe we don't 100% know, you know, where are you going to get your soybean meal in the summer, which I mean, we never really run out, but where are basis values going to go? Where are some of these other things? Should you switch your formula to use more, you know, gluten feed or distillers or other things? You know, that's when it makes sense to just there's a value in just locking things down and, and moving on. And like you said before, yeah. and I, I've heard a lot of producers say it, and it's an interesting point for me, just know your costs, right? Um, know your yeah. costs. Um, I mean, we have a, we have some really good finance guys internally. And, you know, they have no problem making sure that we have to know, know our costs, right? And it's, it's great to hear the producers are saying, I just want to lock it down. I need to know my cost of production. I need to know my margin. I need to have my finances in order. I need to have my nutrition locked down. And, and, you know, so they're, there probably is a premium to look at bookings for sure when it makes sense for all parties and when it really adds some stability or some, um, you know, weird control of costs uh, to your local operation, right? Yeah, well, when you start looking at these six and seven figure feed bills on some of these op operations a year, like I think that we've got to get 
better at kind of judging that market and and maybe even just you know knowing your costs and having a book might be just the the right thing like at least it's one certainty that you have going forward i guess but uh Anyways, Dustin, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the the podcast this week. I know my, my mind's a little bit boggled with all the things that go on in the commodity markets. And I hope that, you know, with you explaining it a little bit, we can kind of help our producers uh, kind of understand where their feed bill's at. And, and I think this is going to kind of segue into some of our um, podcasts that we're going to have in the future uh, in uh, January and February, you know, about how to kind of control feed costs. And I, and I think this is one of the first ones we got to start with is what are the commodities doing? What are the ingredients that we're buying and uh, going and how are they going to affect our farms going forward? So I really thank you. And uh, I just wanted to wish you guys a Merry Christmas. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. It's a great opportunity. And I, I uh, really like the opportunity to support you guys trying to add more value on farm and trying to help people out through these difficult times. So, so thanks for having me, Keith, and thanks for your time. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to the DFD podcast. If you would like to have further discussions about the topics we talked about on this show, please contact me, Keith Schweitzer. I have left my contact information in the show notes. I would also like to say thanks to our sound engineer, Daniel Nogueira. For future updates on topics and guests, please follow me on Twitter, at Keith Schweitzer.